here and you've got your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, if you'll take it and open up to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 31. It's going to take us a few minutes to get there, uh, but that's where the meat and potatoes of what we're doing today is going to be. Uh, just want to say a special thank you to everyone in our church uh, who's been working hard to help other folks who have been uh, caught up in the flood damage. Uh, there's a lot of you guys that uh, I forget about your age sometimes, and we work together all day, and I go to bed tired, and uh, I'm reminded that you're probably just as tired or more because you worked just as hard or more than I did. Um, and so I want to tell you guys, thank you. Uh, we're not blessed with uh, hundreds of young men to clean up the town. It's you guys. Uh, and I think a lot of you guys who are uh, at retirement age, who have retired and are supposed to be in the golden years, uh, you're just as dirty and nasty as me at the end of the day. So thank you all for uh, all the hard work you're putting into uh, helping out our folks who have been flooded out. It means a lot to uh, see all of you guys there. So big thank you to you guys. Um, in light of that, uh, we've covered something a couple Wednesdays ago, uh, we kind of unearthed uh, what's a Christian urban legend, maybe, if there's such a thing. There's something that a lot of Christians say. Uh, Christians say this thing. You may have heard it. You may have said it. If you've said it, I'm going to tell you that it's not true later on in the sermon, so don't, don't think that it's a bait and switch. But oftentimes, sometimes Christians will say things like, God will never put on you more than you can handle, right? You've heard people say that before, and they always say it very well-meaning. They kind of just mean, hang on, things are going to get better. There's going to be light at the end of the tunnel soon. Well, two weeks after the last flood, I thought the light at the end of the tunnel was coming, and someone informed me that it was just another train coming. Uh, it wasn't really the light at the end. It was just more disaster, that would be what happened last week. And so uh, we're going to get around to dealing with uh, God won't put on you more than you can handle in a minute. Uh, but I wanted to start out by kind of telling you that's the direction that we're headed. Uh, and we're going to do so uh, by kind of going over a uh, quick review of the first five books of the Bible very quickly. And then we're going to get to the book of Deuteronomy. And so what I want to do is I want to open us in prayer and then we'll, uh, we'll get into the word. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for all that you're doing amongst us. And Father, we thank you for all the things that you're doing through us. Lord, we love you. And Lord, we pray that nothing will ever keep us uh, from telling the rest of the world how great of a Savior you are. And Father, I pray that no matter what happens, the world will see that our hope is in you, not in anything else. And we ask these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. And so uh, we jump back to the, the very beginning of the scriptures, and the scriptures start out with God creating everything in seven days. You all know, excuse me, creating everything in six days. You all know this. On the seventh day, God rests. He creates man, Adam and Eve, at the pinnacle of his creation, and he tells Adam and Eve that they're to rule over the world, to have dominion over it, and they're to do things on earth the way that he would do them, right? So Adam and Eve live for however long, and they decide that uh, eating from the tree that God said not to eat would be a good idea. So they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and sin has entered the world. And so now that sin has entered the world, uh, man and woman are separated from God, all of mankind, rather, are separated from God, and we are in need of a Savior. So the scriptures keep going on. You get through the story of Cain and Abel. You see how man's heart is no longer inclined towards God, but now man's heart is inclined towards evil and uh, Cain killing Abel. The scriptures go on and mankind just gets more and more and more evil 
all the way through Genesis chapter 4, 5, and 6. And all the way, when you get to Genesis chapter 6, God looks down at the world and he's so fed up with the sin problem that he decides that he really regrets even making man uh, and he destroys everything off the face of the planet except for what gets saved on the ark. You following me? And so he kind of pushes the reset button. Come on, guys. I know we're all tired, but at least let me know that you're keeping up. And so he uh, hits the reset button, and then he starts over with Noah and his family. And he tells Noah and his family the same thing that he told Adam and Eve. He told Adam and Eve to be fruitful, fill the earth. And you know that he's supposed to fill the earth with worshipers of God. And so Noah and his family, they begin to reproduce. They begin to repopulate the earth. And then you get to the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And mankind is no longer worshiping God, but now mankind in the story of the Tower of Babel is out to, the scriptures say, make a name for themselves instead of making a name for God. And so the people build a tower so that they'll make a name for themselves. And God says, no, these people have missed the whole thing. And so God comes down, destroys their tower, and he confuses their language and spreads them out over the entire earth, right? And so mankind is still in need of a savior... Now they all speak different languages and they're spread out over the whole earth. So the problem has gotten that much more difficult to solve. Very next chapter, God takes the first step in solving the problem. And that's he chooses a guy named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, through you, I'm going to draw the nations of the world to myself. And I'm going to give you land, seed, and a blessing. And through those three things, the whole world will see how great I am and I will save the world. Following me? You get all the way through the rest of the book of Genesis, or excuse me, you get on to about Genesis chapter 15, and God says, all right, I'm giving the world, Abraham is my example. People are to be like Abraham, and I'll bless them. The book of Genesis goes on, and you find that shortly after Abraham, people aren't like him anymore. Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and you see that they've kind of each one gets a little and a little farther from the Lord. It's, uh, it's difficult to see, but as you're reading through Genesis, you'll see that Abraham's always building altars, worshiping the Lord, and then there's less and less of that. You get to Jacob and his 12 sons, and what do Jacob and his sons want to do ultimately? Not worship the Lord. They want to kill their little brother because dad likes them more. This is not at all what God had planned. And so now you have a group of people who are supposed to be like Abraham, obeying and honoring the Lord, and now... <clears throat> the 12 grandkids all want to kill their baby brother. So God says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take them all into captivity in Egypt, and I'm going to keep them in Egypt so that their sin can be uh, minimized, so that we can keep them from sinning anymore. And so God brings a famine on the land, and all of the people of Israel, uh, Abraham and his sons, about 70 people, they all go to a land called Goshen, and they live there. Because there's a famine where they're living. And so God keeps them all safe and he keeps them together. And the next book, the book of Exodus, picks up. And it says, then arose a Pharaoh who didn't know Abraham. Okay? Or excuse me, who didn't know, what was that youngest boy's name? Joseph. Who didn't know Joseph. And so, thank you. And so the, boy, the Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph. And so what he does is he takes all of those Israelites and he enslaves them. And so they grow over the course of about 400 years to a people about 2 million strong. And what God's doing is he's keeping them from, from going way out of bounds with their sin. He's keeping them safe until he's ready to use them. Because when they were left to themselves, they became, they became a sinful group of people. And so God is doing just what you would do to your child. If you want an all-expense-paid trip to Disney World and your kid was misbehaving and the plane didn't leave till 5, 6 o'clock that night, what would you do to your child to keep them 
from causing so much trouble that you didn't want to take them to Disney World anymore. You send them to their room because there's only but so much trouble you can get in in your room. At least that's what I thought before I was a parent. Now I'm learning that it's possible to get into a lot of trouble in your room. Uh, but anyways, and so now they're in their room in Egypt and along comes Moses. And God says, Moses, I'm going to use you to deliver my people from slavery. Now, you need to know, for the sake of where we're going, that Egypt is the most powerful nation in the world. Egypt, nobody's going to walk into Egypt and take Egypt's slaves away from them, okay? Just like nobody's going to walk into America, into the Smithsonian Museum, and take all of our things. This is not going to happen, okay? So, Egypt is strong. Israel's not Moses, one man, God's going to send to Pharaoh and he's going to say, let my people go. And eventually, Pharaoh lets all the people go. And it's because of the mighty hand of God showing the world how great he is, letting Egypt, or excuse me, making Egypt get rid of the Israelite people. And so, you know the story. You've got ten plagues. The last plague is the plague of the firstborn. Pharaoh's son dies and Pharaoh says, that's it, all of you get out. And so, God frees all of the Israelites, two million strong from the hand of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world, and now they're free. And then he takes them through the wilderness, and he's going to march them into the promised land, right? Because he's promised Abraham to give him a particular piece of land. And so two million people are walking their way towards the promised land. Now we're all the way through the book of Genesis and Exodus. We're almost to the book of Numbers. This is a pretty quick review, right? So the people get to the edge of the promised land and they say, okay, we've got an idea. We're going to send 12 people in and we're going to see if the land is good and we're going to see if we should take it or not. The 12 spies go in and they come back and 10 of the spies say, no way, no how. The people are huge, never going to happen. And two of the spies, they go, the Lord, the land is good. The Lord said it's ours. Let's go take it. Right? Just a side note. Don't be a person who says, nope, doesn't look good, let's not do it. If the Lord lays out an opportunity for you to take, and it looks like a God-sized task, be one of the people who say, the Lord's given us this opportunity, let's go and take advantage of it. Following me? Let's be those sorts of people instead of the naysayers. That's not directed at anything in particular. That's just saying that there's a monumental task of rebuilding Windsor in front of us. Let's grab the bull by the horns and do it, instead of saying we don't want to do it. It's too big of a task. Come on. Loosen up just a little bit. So now, back to the story at hand. And so the people have marched to the promised land. They send the ten spies, they send the twelve spies in. Ten say it's no good. Two say it's good. And so God says, because of your unfaithfulness, you're gonna die in the desert. And so the ten spies who said it was no good, they die in the wilderness along with everybody else who's over the age of twenty. And if you get to the book of Hebrews, you find that those people died because of unfaithfulness. If you die because of unfaithfulness, that means you weren't a believer in Christ. You weren't a believer in the things of God because you weren't willing to put feet to the things that God said. Okay, that's all in the book of Hebrews around Hebrews chapter 4 or so. And so you've got this whole generation who didn't believe. They die in the wilderness because of unbelief. And God raises up a man named Joshua. And he tells Joshua of a monumental task that has to be done. He says, Joshua, you take all of these people and you lead them into the promised land. Okay, so you have a group of people who are uh, all of the ones that are over 20 died. And so you've got a group of, a, of at most 60 and none of these people have a whole lot of fighting experience. You following me? And so Joshua looks at this ragtag group of folks 
And God says, you're going to take them and you're going to go in and you're going to take over that land where people have been living and they've built fortresses and all these other things, right? A, a pretty big task to take on. I thought about this while I was getting ready. When I was in basic training, right, around 2000, year 2001, I looked around at the people I was surrounded at in boot camp. And my first thought was, how in the world do we win wars with this group of knuckleheads? Like that was my biggest question going through boot camp. It was, how in the world does this happen? And then once you graduate from boot camp, you go to your, your training, you still get out of training and you go, you know what? This group of folks, this isn't, this is not a top notch group of folks we're working with. Then you get shipped out to your duty station where you're going to serve and you learn that it's old guys that win wars telling young guys exactly what they need to do, right? You with me? Did you, you all have noticed that before in your military time? And so Joshua looks at this group of people and there's no old guys to tell anybody what to do. But the Lord says, I want you to be strong and courageous and I want you to go and just do what I'm telling you to do. And so at the end of, back up just a little bit. So Moses is going to die. Joshua is going to take the people into the promised land. He's a new leader getting ready to do a huge task. And so what Moses does at the end of his life is he writes a book to this new generation, right? You've got this new crowd who was real young when they left Egypt. They don't remember the Ten Commandments. They don't remember the law that was given to them. And so Moses reinstitutes the law with the people, and that's the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is just recounting all of the things that God had done with the nation of Israel. And they're reaffirming the covenant, saying that they're going to be God's people and they're going to trust him. Okay, so now that they know what's expected of them, Moses gets to the end of the book of Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy chapter 31 and listen to what he says and keep this in mind. We're going to go to the Lord won't put on you more than you can handle. So Deuteronomy chapter 31. So Moses went, this is verse one and spoke these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I'm 120 years old today. I'm no longer able to come and go. And the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross this Jordan. It is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you, just as the Lord has spoken. The Lord will do to them just as he did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. The Lord will deliver them up before you, and you shall do to them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. And so what they're going to do is they're going to go in and they're going to rid the promised land of all the people. Okay, they're going to run or kill every single one of them out of the land. This is a monumental task to do. And listen to what he says. This is verse six. He says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them for the Lord. Your God is the one who goes with you and listen to the next verse. He will not fail you or forsake you. So he says, you need to be strong and courageous and you need to know that what you're getting ready to do, you can only do because the Lord, your God is going with you. And it's possible when you get into a sticky situation or when you lose everything in a flood to look around and go, okay, where's the Lord with me now? Like that's a legitimate question. When water starts coming up to look around and go, okay, where's the Lord? The next section of that verse says, he, that's the Lord, will not fail you or forsake you. He never promises that, that you're not going to have trials and tribulations. He promises Joshua that no matter what happens, Rest on this. The Lord isn't going to fail you or forsake you. And he goes on. Verse 7. He says, Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all of Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has, 
which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. Verse 8, the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And so twice in Joshua's going away speech, he says, be strong and courageous and the Lord is with you. Do not, he will not fail you or forsake you. And so what I want you to know, if you've lost everything in a flood or you have friends that have lost everything in a flood, is that do not fear because the Lord will not fail you or forsake you. When it looks like the whole deck is stacked against you and your friends and your family and everything else, God is never going to fail you and he's never going to forsake you. And so if you're like me, you're probably saying right now, yeah, preacher, that's all well and good. But he said that to Joshua. He never said that to us. And that's a really good question. And if you're thinking that, I'm really proud of you. But if you look over in the book of Hebrews, you get to the book of Hebrews, and this it gets even closer to home when you go over to Hebrews, and you see how the writer of Hebrews used it. This is Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, says this. And while you're turning there, the whole chapter of 13 is talking about the power of the love of Christ in different social areas. And verse 5 is where we're going. And it says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. So Windsor, North Carolina, didn't lose anybody in the flood that I know of, right? No one died in the flood. So all of our losses were monetary and sentimental, right? probably lost some sentimental things most of us lost some things that cost some money and so that's where our biggest problem is so he says in verse five make sure that your character is free from the love of money being content with what you have for he himself has said i will never desert you nor will i ever forsake you so that we can confidently say the lord is my helper i will not be afraid And so I want you to see that even the writer of Hebrews takes that the Lord will never fail you or forsake you promise. And he brings it over into our life today that if we will be content following the Lord, he'll never fail us or forsake us. And so I want you just to be comforted knowing that while things are down, the Lord has not turned his back on anybody and he hasn't failed anybody and he hasn't forsaken anybody. If you go over to the book of Corinthians, this is first Corinthians chapter 13. Just flip back a couple books. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13. I want to just touch on the misunderstanding between the Lord not failing you and forsaking you and the Lord not putting on you more than you can handle. And so there is something that the Lord won't give you more than you can handle. Just sorry it's not pain and trouble and trials. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says this. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is as common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. And so he doesn't say that God won't give you more pain and trial and heartache than you can handle. He doesn't say he'll give you more, he'll never give you more problems than you can handle. What it says is that he'll never tempt you beyond what you can handle without giving you a way of escape. Following me? That's a lot different 
that he won't tempt you beyond what you can handle and he won't give you more than you can bear. Those are two polar opposite things. And so what I want you to see is that we've been given more than any individual should have to bear or should be able to bear, right? But the promise is, is that the Lord is not going to fail you or forsake you. And this is the incredibly good news in the midst of it. It's that, yes, you've been given more than you should be able to handle. But God's right there with you in the midst of all of it, right? God's giving you brothers and sisters in Christ who are going to help you through it all. And so uh, just, to, just to be a little bit personal if I can, not to share too much, uh, Barbara and Milton Tadlock get a flood that comes through their house. Uh, Milton's not able because of age uh, and physical ability to do some of the work that needed to be done. He's been given more than he can handle, but you all as the body of Christ show up and you handle it for him. And so the body of Christ physically manifests itself with the church and helps out someone who's been given more than they should have to handle. Right? My whole street, four or five homes, all flooded out, have been given more than they should be able to handle. But I get a phone call from Chowan University that says, I've got 20 football players who need to come for a couple hours and work hard. And 20 football players get more work done in five hours than we got done in five days. We were given more than we can handle. But God hasn't forgiven us or forsaken us. Right? Uh... I feel like the presence of Christ has been more active over the last three weeks in our community than he has over the last three years. I've gotten to spend more time with Ron Miller enjoying ourselves, working hard, being the body of Christ than I have in the last three years. And the time we've spent together has been monumentally enjoyable. And Ron came over to my house the last time uh, we had helped some other folks. Ron came a little bit early and he was going to help me out. And we started lifting some things and, and we lifted. We had to take some boards that probably didn't make sense. We had to move them to a different spot in my yard. And we moved one. They were just super heavy. I looked at Ron and I said, hey, Ron, how about we save the rest of these boards for the football players and let them move them? And he said, I think that's a really good idea. And so, listen, we've been given tasks that are more than we can handle. But God has been sending us help all along the way. I'll tell you a, a personal story. And I'm not telling you this to, to, uh, to gloat or to, uh, to say anything good about myself. You know, that's the last thing I want to do. But I want to tell you this to encourage you. So about two years ago, uh, I took over the finances for our family, right? A lot of y'all know I'm not a numbers guy. Anyways, so I've got, I've got like, I take care of all the bills and everything else. I, I felt like it was something that I just needed to take off of my wife so she didn't have to worry about it. And so uh, I'm the kind of guy that if I owe somebody money, I'll go without eating and I'm going to have you paid off because I don't like to be in debt to anybody. And so when I took over doing the bills, I took all of the money that we had, put it together, and tried to pay off everything that we needed to pay off. Like, I wasn't super in debt and didn't have a whole ton of people, but I took the money that was available and, and spent it to, to get rid of the bills. Right? This is, this is my best idea. Like, I think that all of us should be debt-free. That's just my opinion. And so that's the direction that we're headed. And so I've spent... There's no more money laying around the house. Like, I used to stockpile a little bit of money here and there. And I knew where all of it was, right? Because if you know me, I have a, a, a thread of being a tightwad that runs all through my body, right? Right? And, and tightwads don't lose money, right? If I took all of my money and buried it in 10 places around the world, 
I would be able to take you to every 10 of those places. That's just how I'm hardwired. And so we're at the end of last month. And just like all of you, we're waiting on payday to get here. And there's a need arises. And a bunch of people have jumped in meeting a need. And we jump in to meet a need also to help with something. There was a, a handful of us here at church that, that put our money together. And, uh, you know, did we have it to give? Probably not. Okay, definitely not. Uh, but we gave it anyways, right? Actually, my wife gave it. Uh, she gave it. And, and I wasn't worried that God was going to take care of things because I've told you before that I've got countless stories of God supplying all sorts of financial needs. So we give to meet the need. I'm rummaging around somewhere and I found $700 that I didn't have before, right? That money appeared out of nowhere. I didn't, I didn't lose it and find it. That was money that God provided promise you because i've told you that that tight wad string that runs all the way through me helps me not lose any money listen i'm the kind of guy who gets mad when the drink machine takes 50 cents right like i'm a i'm a call the number on the machine kind of guy give him a 50 cents back i used to be now i'm a little more liberal with 50 cents but uh anyways brothers and sisters we need to be looking out for our neighbors we need to be giving sacrificially we need to be helping out every single way that we can. And even if it looks like we don't have it, God will provide it. But oftentimes you have to give out of what you don't have before God provides more for you to give. True story. And so what I want you to see is that please don't say God won't put on you more than you can handle. Let's just erase that from our vocabulary. Let's just say that one flood is more than anybody should have to handle. You've been through four or five floods now, right? That's more than you can handle. Let's be the type of church that rests on the promises of God and says, yes, life is a bear to put up with. You've got sickness, you've got famine, you have disease, you have death, you have floods, you have fires, you have all sorts of these other things that are a pain in the neck to deal with. Let's not keep telling people God's not going to give you more than you can handle. Let's just say that, listen, in the midst of all of this stuff that's going on, I can promise you this from experience, God will never fail you or forsake you. And let's be the type of church, let's continue to be the type of church this active helping other people who aren't telling other people that God won't put on you more than you can handle, but when they can't handle it anymore, let's be the type of people who rise to the occasion and handle it for them. Even if it takes taking time off of work, even if it takes paying for things out of your own pocket, let's be the type of people who are generous, who realize that people are in over their heads in water and they need help. And brothers and sisters, lastly, before we come to the Lord's table, we need to be the type of people who, when we are in over our heads, who, when life has been bad, he's given us more than we can handle. We need to be the people who are looking to each other and who are looking to Christ instead of putting our hope in insurance and in FEMA and all of these other things. We need to put our hope and the only thing that can take our hope, and that's the Lord. If we get things from insurance, great. If we get things from FEMA, great. But right now, the, the world needs to see that our hope is in the Savior.
Jesus Christ. He is the one who helps us sleep at night, right? No amount of money is going to fix things. No amount of money is going to fix the biggest problem that we have. And I told you during the last flow that the biggest problem that we as a, as a nation and as a town have is a sin problem. And the rest of the world needs to see that even amidst the rising waters and everything else, Jesus Christ solves the sin problem in your life. Right? He's the only one who makes it so that you're able to stand before God and be righteous. You following me? And so let's be those sorts of people. And so now what I want to do is I want to close us. I want to wind down this part of the message. I want to kind of transition to the Lord's table. And so let me pray for us. And then I'll give you some instructions as to how we're going to do the Lord's table uh, this morning. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for all that he is in our life. Father, we thank you that as difficult as life gets sometimes, Lord, we thank you that you're the one who will never fail us or forsake us. And Father, as difficult as things are, the very last feeling that we have as a church is that you've turned your back on us. But Father, right now we're overwhelmed with how we have been able to band together and to serve one another as you've called us to do. And so Father, I pray that you would continue to give us strength I pray that you would continue to give us um, your heart for the broken people around us. And Father, I pray that when we're done serving each other, that we would continue serving this town so that everyone can see the light of Christ in our lives. God, we love you, and we thank you for all you've done for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So what we're going to do is we're going to come to the Lord's table in a minute. We're going to pass out the elements like we always do, but we're going to pass out the, uh, the bread first. And then we're not going to have any downtime. We're going to pass the uh, juice to you immediately following that. So you hang on to the bread, hang on to the juice, and you'll be in good shape, okay? A little head nod would be nice. Okay. And then I'm going to share, once you get the bread and juice in your hand, I'm going to, sh- I'm going to have the deacon sit down. I'm going to share maybe about two or three, four minutes of, uh, of, of a little walking you through some scriptures. Uh, and then we're going to take the uh, bread and the juice in a little bit different manner than you're used to. So deacons, if y'all will come on forward, we'll... Prepare the table. All right. Well, don't spill it and don't crack it, right? That'll be the goal of what you're doing. And so uh, what I want to do is uh, let you know that uh, I've had a question before about the Lord's table. Anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ has put their faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, been forgiven of their sins, is welcome to partake of the Lord's table uh, at, our, at our church, whether you're a member here or not. And so uh, we're all one family in Christ. That's our belief. And so I just wanted to let all of you know that so that you're comfortable taking the Lord's Supper with us. But uh, we kind of walked through from uh, Genesis to the book of Deuteronomy, sharing some things with you about the Lord's Supper. And uh, I don't want to take the Lord's Supper in a way that we have, uh, we normally do. What I want to do is I want us to, to take it with a lot of hope and a lot of um, uh, excitement. And so um, what I want to do is I want to kind of start you off with Adam and Eve again. And uh, Adam and Eve were perfect. Right? right? God created them perfect. They were without sin. And they walked with God in the cool of the day. And so every meal that they ate was in the presence of the Lord. And that was a normal thing. Well, when that fellowship was broken between Adam and Eve and the Lord, uh, there was no more eating in the presence of the Lord until you get to the time of the tabernacle in the temple. Right? So God manifests His presence in the tabernacle in the temple. And people, when they would bring their tithe each year, when they would come for different offerings... They would, if they lived in a far land, they would sell their, their goods, 
bring the money to the temple, and then they would rebuy their goods. We talked about that before, how practical God was. And then during many of the offerings, they would eat a portion of their offering in the presence of the Lord. And they would eat that in the presence of the Lord, looking forward to the future Messiah who was going to forgive them of their sins, right? And so if you read through the book of Hebrews, you'll read that uh, when the people were at the temple during the Day of Atonement, the Holy Spirit was working in the lives of people, letting them know that there would one day be a way for them to get into the Holy of Holies, okay? And so the Holy Spirit is all at work when people are eating together in the presence of the Lord. And so then you get to the Last Supper with Jesus. Jesus is at the Last Supper and he, he breaks the bread and he hands out the wine and he tells his disciples that I won't eat of this meal again with you until I eat it in my Father's house, right? Following me? We'll eat this meal in heaven together. And so there was Adam and Eve are eating every meal in the presence of the Lord. He's physically there. You have the people in the Old Testament eating the eating the a meal in the presence of the Lord. They're looking forward to a Messiah. We can eat the Lord's Supper looking back as a memorial to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And we can also eat it looking forward to a time where all things are going to be created new in heaven and we all are at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so I'm going to read some different passages. Uh, I'm in the book of Revelation. You don't have to turn there with your juice and your bread. But Revelation chapter 19 verse 6 says this, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to the Lamb for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Just for the record. Those of you who are sacrificing the years you have left and you're sacrificing of your time and your money to help those who have been uh, flooded out, you are storing up for yourselves righteous clothes or white righteous clothes to wear in heaven. And so you're going to be dressed in those good deeds when you get to heaven. And then he said, verse 9, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. And so you got invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb the second you got saved. Right? You confessed your sins. You repented of your sins. You put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from all unrighteousness. When you did that, you were given the Holy Spirit and you were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so one day, you and I will sit down at a table with the Lord and we will share a meal together in heaven. That is really exciting. And you flip over another page or two and you see that it gets even more exciting because heaven is such a great place. And this is chapter 21 of Revelation, verses 2 through 7. And he says this, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. 
He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. After the flood, uh, our neighborhood has been even more. This is not our church family. This is the houses that are immediately around mine, our neighborhood. Our neighborhood has been more tight-knit than ever, right? For the first time in years, we all got together and had a cookout at one person's house, and everybody in the neighborhood showed up. It was a time where we had all been working with each other and for each other. And this is, this is, some of them are lost, some of them are saved, right? So their, their salvation is, is, is unknown to me. This isn't a group of, uh, church folks coming together. But when we got together, because we had been working so hard and diligently on houses, we got together to rest. And we ate chili together, right? And we drank cold sodas together. And man, it was remarkably enjoyable. But brothers and sisters, when we get to heaven and we sit down and we rest in that final rest with God, those of us who overcome sin, those of us who overcome persecution, those of us who overcome all of the things that the devil has to throw at us, one day we will all get to sit down together and we will rest. And that meal will be better than any neighborhood gathering that you have ever experienced because it will be over. The pain, the tears, the death, the mourning, the crying, all of those things will be gone. And we will be able to enjoy each other and Christ forever without any fear of what's to come. And so, brothers and sisters, uh, let's together drink this looking forward to the day where we will spend an eternity in heaven together in the hope of knowing that that is true take together let me pray for us and then we'll stand and sing our hymn of invitation father we thank you that we look forward to that day where we can spend eternity with you we look forward to that day where there's no more earthquakes there's no more famines there's no more tears there's no more pain there's no more death there's no more sorrow father we thank you that one day you will wipe all of that away father i pray that in the meantime that you would help us to endure well i pray that you would give us uh, the strength that we need to take whatever this world has to throw at us and to give you all the glory in return father we love you we thank you and how you're using our church in a mighty way amidst all of this disaster. And Father, I pray that in the days and weeks and months to come, that you would use this flood to draw many souls to yourself. And it's all in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you would stand with us for a hymn of invitation. You can be seated for just a moment. I've got uh, 39 yes votes, no no votes, so... Uh, if you're a Sunday school teacher, congratulations. If you're an officer, congratulations. Uh, lucky you. Uh, hopefully, uh, we'll continue to be able to uh, drum up volunteers for different spots that we need. Uh, thank you all for serving, and thank you all who served before. Uh, also want to let you know that uh, we have a member of our church, uh, Miss Karen Fuller. Many of you uh, may know her already. Uh, she has uh, rededicated her life to Christ, and uh, I'm going to let her, when we finish up, Come forward and you guys can come by and uh, congratulate her and extend the right hand of fellowship to her and uh, tell that you'll be praying for her and such. And so, Karen, I'm excited about uh, what the Lord is doing in your life. Uh, I want you guys to know that uh, the Lord is at work uh, in, a, in a lot of different people's lives in different ways. 
I've told you before, I wish that uh, it were easy for you guys to be able to see the things that, uh, the encouraging things that I get to see. And so I just know that the Lord is doing all sorts of great things amidst all of the tragedy. Uh, I want you guys to know that uh, I love each and every one of you, and there's nothing that our church won't do for you uh, if we simply know. We can't uh, jump in and do anything uh, if we don't know of a need. And so uh, in saying that, I'm going to ask uh, Brother Jack Powell if you would close us in prayer. Um, we'll be dismissed.